Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Welcome. Hello to everybody. Uh, And welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Michael Krasny. I'm the host of the podcast Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and the former host of KQED's Forum Program. It's my pleasure to be joined this evening by Richard Haas, who is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And Dr. Haas is a veteran diplomat and a prominent voice on American foreign policy. He's also the author or editor of 14 books on American foreign policy, one book on management and one on American democracy. His latest book is called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. It was published in January, became a New York Times bestseller. And in his new book, he highlights the importance of fostering a culture of civic responsibility. And he outlines the 10 habits that underpin a healthy, thriving democracy. We're going to talk with him about the book, and we're going to ask him to reflect on his two decades as a president of the Council of Foreign Relations as he prepares to step down from that role in June. We'll also get his expert take on some of the biggest foreign policy challenges facing the U.S. And welcome, Richard Haas. Good to be back with you again. Good to be with you, Michael. Uh, A reminder to our audience, if you're here with us in San Francisco and you have a question for Dr. Haas, please write it on the question cards near your seats. If you're watching along with us online, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube. We'll be getting to audience questions later in the program. Well, I read Richard's book, and uh, let me say congratulations to you first on a book that I think is really important and necessary for our times. Um, I may bring in some things that uh, quibble and challenge, but for the most part, I think the book is an important book, and it's a book that people should read, and I hope they do. It's like a, a kind of decalogue. You know, you've got 10 responsibilities. Moses came on Sinai with uh, 10 commandments. You've got 10 responsibilities. The Bill of Rights has 10, so... This can, in fact, be of great import, I think, to the people who read it. It was certainly to me and had that kind of impact on me. As I mentioned the Ten Commandments, there are some Talmudic scholars who say the most important one is the first one. So let's start with your first one, which is just to be informed. And that's pretty difficult these days because there's so much information. And uh, I wonder what your wisdom is in terms of trying to sort out all of that information and really ways that one can be informed, particularly maybe when we have on our horizons um, um, an artificial intelligence that may make anything on the internet false news. But your thoughts for the present? It is the first obligation. Let me say, first of all, good to be with you. Good to be here at the Commonwealth uh, Club. Being informed is the first of the 10 obligations. I see it as foundational. Uh, Jefferson talked about the importance of an informed citizenry. Uh, Two centuries later, Ronald Reagan talked about the importance not simply of patriotism, but informed patriotism. So I think it's I think it's essential for uh, citizens in a democracy. And but you put your finger, Michael, on one of the contradictions. Uh, How does one become and stay informed at a time we're flooded with information? Sounds easy. Turns out it's anything but, because so much of what we're flooded with is either contradictory or, in many cases, things that purport to be facts are, are, anything, are anything but. I should probably also add that the reason being informed is, is so important is it's the only way in a representative democracy to hold elected or appointed officials to account. It's the only way to make decisions about what's in your own best interest, your community's best interest, your state, your country's best uh, Best interest, and again, you're you're bombarded 
I have a few you know, basic things about um, no one should single source information. If any of us had a diagnosis that was serious, we'd probably want to get a second opinion medically. I would think the state of our democracy is worthy of a, a second opinion. So rather than just MSNBC or CNN or Fox or any single newspaper, also not all sources or information are even or equal. Uh, social media, my one insight is it's called social media. It's not called serious media. Uh, it's not called content-filled media. Uh, these are not edited. Uh, gate, these are, there's no gatekeepers in these areas. People tend to go where they feel comfortable. So by and large, no one should get his or her um, information from, from social media. There are serious newspapers. There are uh, you know, uh, serious shows on television and radio. So I would say gravitate towards those in terms of current issues. I also think being informed in a democracy requires a certain exposure to the fundamentals, to the great books of, and documents of American democracy, some of the basis of history which is why uh, one of the later obligations is the importance of uh, teaching and studying civics in our, in our schools. I think that's foundational. But then on top of that, one has to get a form. One last thing, sorry to go on so long. I think it's really interesting that the state of New Jersey, 3,000 miles east of here, uh, the governor just recently signed in the law uh, a requirement that in New Jersey schools, information literacy be taught. And the whole idea is to help young people, students, become critical consumers of information, getting at your question. So the idea of what are the right techniques, where do you go, uh, where don't you go, and so forth. And I think that's a real, it doesn't tell, doesn't teach anyone how to think, or much less what to think, but it does teach them to be critical consumers of, of, of information. Well, so much of what you are just saying and what you say in the book has to do with foundations of democracy and how to keep democracy from deteriorating or going south and downhill and the kinds of things that we're all concerned and anxious about. When you talk about civics, I, in the book, I thought of my old civics teacher who used to say, principle of democracy is compromise. And you make the case. I mean, responsibility and necessity, if we're going to make democracy endure, is to learn how to compromise. It's essential to be open to compromise. I don't want to come off and suggest that compromise is always the right uh, policy. There are times to hold firm, but one ought to always be open to compromise. And by that, I mean, think through what are the likely consequences of not co of refusing to compromise? Will those leave? Will that leave you better off? In some cases, conceivably, yes. In most cases, I would argue not. Would it leave the country better off? In most cases, I would say not. And, and, you know, again, there's many arguments for compromise. It's a way to get some of what you want, if not all. It's a way to get buy-in from those who might oppose you. Uh, it tends to get around gridlock, which is one of the great problems of American democracy. We simply can't get things done to meet our to meet our challenges. And also, openness to compromise, I think, decreases the chance that gridlock leads to violence, which is uh, you know we can get. We'll I expect we'll talk about that. But we've had some taste of violence in recent American history. We're just marking right now the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, ending uh, three, uh, ending decade, three decades on the so-called troubles of decentralized, politically inspired violence. It happened there. No one should think it, it couldn't happen here. One of the ways to avoid it, I believe, is uh, an openness to compromise and a willingness to compromise, even when it's sometimes controversial. It's interesting, John F. Kennedy in, in Profiles and Courage, 
uh, several of the senators he singled out were people who were willing to compromise when the pressures were on them not to. But I'm sure you hear all the time about how polarized we are now and how compromise seems uh, in some ways beyond us, particularly when we think about I was just thinking about how partisan politics seems to be divided into so many areas. I mean, we could go speak uh, ad infinitum about that. But um, the sense I have now of the division on the one hand between Republicans where, let's say, abortion and immigration is concerned or Democrats and the way they see those issues or the way they see guns. I mean, look what happened in Tennessee, for example. That kind of polarization is where we're at, isn't it? It is where we're at. Uh, that's simply, it's, again, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, that I wanted to get, get, get beyond that. And indeed, it's why a rights-based approach to democracy can't succeed. You know, Lincoln's famous quote uh, about our unfinished work. And when you think about the last two and a half centuries of this country's history, and we're, we're marking this the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in three years, in 2026. A lot of it is to narrow the gap between the promises of our rights and the reality. Again, to, if you will, get closer and closer to finishing Abraham Lincoln's unfinished work. And I think we have made remarkable, though uneven and incomplete progress in this, in this country. My argument is that if we actually were to ever complete it, if the unfinished work were to be finished, that still wouldn't be enough for American democracy to work. You mentioned abortion. How does one deal with a, a mother's, a woman's right to choose and the rights of the unborn? Uh, what do you do when those interests or those rights collide or Second Amendment rights as articulated by some versus rights to public safety? The right not to wear a mask or get vaccinated versus the right uh, to, to, to health. Uh, a rights-based democracy automatically brings with it collision. And again, collision at a minimum tends to engender gridlock, couldn't, could, bring about, uh, could bring about violence. Some of this is irreconcilable, it seems, though. I mean, particularly when you talk about guns and abortion and some of those we used to call talk show 101 issues, uh, it seems as if um, we're in a polarized place now that, in fact, it's sort of surprising to me in some ways that when you talk about responsibility uh, and you say you're more concerned, like Pogo said, the enemy within, we, in, in Richard's book, he writes about what keeps him up at night. You know, what keeps him up at night is not necessarily, well, these may keep him up as well. Uh, the People's Republic and uh, Russia and Ukraine, obviously, they are a great disturbing uh, very much in the moment. Um, but you're more worried about democracy. You're more worried about what's at home. That's foreign affairs begins at home, really, for you, doesn't it? Absolutely. And again, I am, as you would expect from the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, someone who focuses on things out there. And I didn't set out to write this book. In, in some ways, it just shouted out and demanded to be written. And uh, you know, I'd ask, uh, yeah, I am worried about China. I am obviously worried about Russia or Iran or climate change or it's a long list. And you'd have to be you know, ignoring the world not to be worried about it. But if you look at the last, what, 70, 75 years since American entry into World War II, we've done a pretty decent job of coping with external challenges, beginning with Hitler's Germany, Imperial Japan, through the four decades of Cold War, the last I checked, the Cold War stayed cold, ended peacefully, and ended on terms remarkably consistent with Western 
uh, interests. I think our biggest mistakes in, in foreign policy tend to be when we've overreached in Korea going north of the 38th parallel in Vietnam and Iraq in, in 2003. But all, all things being equal, uh, the United States, I believe, has a record it can feel relatively uh, good about over the last three quarters of a century. But the prerequisites of that were a growing economy, the ability to get things done at home, to have bandwidth, to focus on the rest of the world, a significant degree of political uh, overlap polarization was kept uh, in check. So when you had Democrats replaced by Republicans or vice versa, uh, the areas of continuity were greater than the areas of uh, change. So we were seen as largely predictable and, and reliable. So the domestic foundations of a successful foreign policy, I think, are, are pretty obvious. And my concern is that without these domestic foundations now, I worry about the consequences for our foreign policy. Without us playing a constructive role, I worry about the consequences for the world. And if the world begins to unravel, it's going to come here, the consequences of that, and that will actually exacerbate our domestic uh, problems. So I think it, it's all connected, but I just don't see how, uh, I mean, one way to, how we can be successful abroad without being somewhat unified at home. One way, you know, I have two images of coins in my head. Uh, coins, by the way, I'm not sure anyone carries them anymore, but uh, you and I grew up with them. One is the national security coin. One side is, uh, you know, all these ex you know, foreign policy and all that. The other side of national security is domestic, domestic unity and cohesion. And the other is the citizenship coin. One side is rights, one side is obligations. And I find it useful to think about both these uh, questions with these two dimensions. Rights and obligations uh, include a sense of community, obviously. They include an awareness of, I was just thinking um, today, uh, I actually fell down an incline because I was picking up my dog's waste material, being a good citizen. Um, and there are a lot of people who don't do those little kinds of things, their scofflaws or whatever. It has to do with consciousness almost. I, I don't want to get into, you know, woo-woo stuff here, but, you know, how you think about the way you are toward your fellow human beings, your fellow Americans, as a patriot, as a citizen, it means a lot in terms of just being careful about how you regard that other person's humanity. Um, so how to instill people with more of a sense, I mean, this is a country about individualism, you know, people yeah. think, my individual rights are most important of all. When I want a gun, I should have a gun, you know, that sort of thing. Well, a couple of balances here. One is you're getting a little bit of civility. Uh, it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. By and large, arguments don't improve if you attack you know, with ad hominem attacks. By and large, arguments don't improve if, you, um, if you, you shout or shout the other person down. Also, the person, imagine you and I were disagreeing here on something right now. There might be a case for us agreeing on something else in half an hour or next week. If we destroy a relationship over one issue, it, it destroys our ability to work together on other things. So it turns out that thinking about your relationship with the other person is not just the right thing to do. It's also from your own narrow self-interest, the, the smart thing to do. And more broadly in a society, I'd say the same thing. I mean, you have all the scriptural references to being one's brother's or sister's keeper. We have a responsibility because it's the right thing to do. But again, it's also the smart thing to do. How well will this society do if there's millions of people who are not succeeding? It will be a burden for the rest of us. So I think it's the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. And we've already alluded to the areas of uh, public health, 
areas of things like uh, guns and so forth, where we owe it to other people to to do the right thing. But in return, we benefit if they do the the the, the right thing. Uh, I get frustrated because I I do worry that the 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 ethos of individualism is out of hand here. There's a kind of rugged individualism that seems to almost be an absolute without thinking about the implications for others. I also think a lot of these individuals, shall we say, are uh, selective in what they notice. These people denouncing obligation, you know, the role of government or obligations to others, but they're very happy to collect Medicare, uh, their social security check, unemployment insurance, pandemic payments, and the uh, the rest of people are somewhat selective, shall we say, in what they uh, notice. I also think this is an area where religious authorities ought to uh, ought to step up. You know, uh, my own rabbi says that his job is not just to comfort the afflicted, but it's to afflict the comfortable. Okay, that's uh, that seems to me uh, fair enough. So one of the things that religious authorities of any denomination ought to be doing is, you know, based on the scripture, it is the right thing to do. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's uh, keeper. It's one of the many things they could preach. They could also preach on the importance of uh, not allowing differences to spill over into violence. They can talk about civility. They can talk about um, uh, compromise. You know, this democracy is not going to be saved by a single transcendent figure appearing on the scene after some presidential election or something. It's going to happen from the bottom up, from what teachers do, what religious leaders do, what business leaders do, what educators do. If we're going to get through this, uh, if we're going to celebrate another couple of centuries of American democracy. It really will have to be a ground up collective effort. As you say, though, above all, you have to have a kind of credo and faith in the country, faith in the democracy that as the anchor of all of what you're saying? I think you have to have a faith in it, but you've, you've also got to have some appreciation of why it's worth having faith in. And it's one of the things that worries me. Uh, I don't think enough people in this country understand the upside of democracy because a lot of them haven't st- studied history. They haven't seen how democracy is delivered over the uh, gener- generations. Think about it if you're a young person. Just say you're 40 ish, 35. So you, maybe you've been politically aware for 15 or so years or 20 years. Well, what's happened in those 15 or 20 years? Well, you have 9 11, you got a 2007 8 financial crisis, the more recent uh, inflation and banking crisis. You've had a a pandemic, you had the war in Iraq, you had a war in Afghanistan, you have January 6th, you have a, a Washington that's unable to uh, come together to meet a lot of challenges. So it's not surprising to me that you have uh, you know, the Pew poll the other day it just shows how many Americans are uh, discouraged or pessimistic about the future and don't see the value of democracy. So if we're going to have faith in democracy, it's got to be based in part on on on, on, on evidence. And I think we've got to change the momentum of American democracy. If not, we're seeing what you get. You get populism. Populism is what breeds and grows when the establishment, when government can't deliver improvement to people's lives. And we're in trouble now because for many Americans, the American dream has become a dream rather than a, a reachable reality. And that, that worries me. And so, yeah, we have to have that faith in government, the faith in democracy. But that faith also has to be based on results. Well, since you mentioned populism on January 6th, um, what do we do about the fact that many of those who uh, 
participated in what's been called the insurrection, fancied themselves patriots. They were doing what the American revolutionaries did. They were taking, and you say reject violence as a major part of your own uh, 10 responsibilities to good citizenship. There are those who say violence is necessary. It's the only way we can be heard. I mean, they're I was thinking today about this country compared to Canada, just for these random kind of school shootings and what happened in Louisville and so forth. Um, Why is it that people feel that they have to go out and do these kinds of things as opposed to having them somehow under control or feel their their citizenship in a way that feels, I can't do that sort of thing? I'd probably unpack it and divide up two kinds of violence in this country. One is the prevalence of guns and gun-related violence, and I think that gets into the issue of uh, both of gun rights and two aspects of it. Who has access to guns? How do we filter that? And what kind of guns do they have access to? And you know, I could be a strong supporter of the Second Amendment and say there are certain people who shouldn't get within the same zip code of a gun. And second of all, having access to guns does not mean AR-15s. You know, we wouldn't give people access to F-16s or Abrams tanks. Okay, so let's start moving it down. Why AR-15s? These are weapons of war. Bazookas. Exactly. So you know, we're already agreed on the principle of certain limits. So I think that's one issue. I think the issue of political violence of January 6th or something is something very different. And that's the argument. It's almost an ends means argument that things are so bad or whatever that it justifies using violence for political purposes. I just think there has to be zero scope for that regardless of one's uh, politics. And that's where, again, political authorities, religious authorities, and the rest have to come down hard. And that's that's the end of American democracy. That's when, again, that's when we have our version of Northern Ireland. And imagine, look, okay, here's one example. We just went through the pandemic. And we all saw how constrained our lives were because of the pandemic. Well, if we start having political violence, we're going to have a version of that. I remember in Washington, D.C., where I used to live, there were uh, the two people out killing people when they filled up their their gas tanks with you know, cars with gas. And suddenly going to a gas station became an act of some risk and courage. Well, I can imagine a situation like it was in Northern Ireland where simply going about your daily business involves much more risk than, than, than it ought to. And it could be for political reasons. Suddenly any city hall or state house obviously the Capitol in Washington, judges, elected officials, appointed officials all become vulnerable. That is, That to me threatens the very fabric of American democracy. So it's essential to be delegitimized, it be denounced. And anyone who starts moving in that direction, they do, they do get met with the full, the full weight of the law. You mentioned religion a couple of times, and um, this is a country that was certainly moored in and anchored to religion for so long. But we become more secular, and the religious forces in this country, one could argue, become more politicized than ever would, especially the evangelical movement, right. than ever would have been imagined. So, how could you? Let me ask you to flesh this out or spirit it out, if you want, uh, in terms of wh- <laughs> where religion nicely done plays a role in your mind. I mean, certainly, as far as African Americans, the church has been really their anchor, um, but a lot of Americans, it works in a very different way. I mean, we are relatively still a, a religious church, synagogue, mosque going side, but less than we used to be. The trends are moving somewhat in the opposite direction. I mean, a lot of my obligations have a connection. I think I've referred to them, things like nonviolence, things like looking out for the common good, 
for for one's fellow uh citizens civility uh compromise these are these are all things that that preachers can and should uh preach and i just see them as important uh voices americans tend to respect religious authorities for and i'm not asking them to take positions on policy uh this is this is policy agnostic it's just simply no policy difference warrants for example the use of uh the use of violence, or as we go about our politics, individualism must be tempered with a sense of obligation or responsibility to the larger community. People are, are members of religious communities. So by definition, I think they have a sense. We're a very generous country. Forgive me, but does that mean more separation of church and state? Or Well, again, you know, this is a country founded on not just freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. And, and both are central to the, uh, to the, to the American uh, Experiment. So I, I think there's a difference between religion uh, as an organized force and uh, and just religious values permeating a society. You know, the phrase Judeo-Christian is commonly talked about. And again, a lot of the things I write about, I think one can find Old and New Testament uh, elements of of uh, both. Indeed, I quote certain philo- religious philosophers who talk about the need to balance uh, rights and obligations. And the language is somewhat different sometimes in, the, in a religious context, but I think this, you know, religions in some ways, uh, I think at their core, are about certain balances between rights and, and, and obligations. And what do you foresee in the way of um, required service, especially for young people? That's for, in your book. Yeah, required is too strong, because then I think we would end up having a big debate about the word required or mandated. So I'm a big believer in an incentivized service. You do it, by the way, in this state, in California. You've got all sorts of public service programs where you basically incentivize mostly young people. It doesn't have to be exclusively. But you would say, uh, we will pay you X amount to do these jobs in these, in these uh, areas. And I think it's a, a great way to get people to mix who may come from different backgrounds. You can incentivize it by the pay. You can incentivize it. Employers can announce in advance that people who have one or two years of this kind of service, they're more likely to hire the same way they hire veterans. I can imagine universities would give preference in admissions to young people who would say spent two years in gap years doing public service. I would like to see it done at the national level. I think there there is a caucus in Washington Congress, bipartisan, that is trying to do this. I think it's hard now mainly for resource reasons. But I think so long as it's not mandated, I think there's a decent chance. And to me, what's what's really good, it breaks down some of the barriers between individuals and government. But even more, Michael, I worry about the fact that too many Americans now don't have, I'll put it the other way, too many Americans have separate experiences. If you tell me something about uh, the geography, the religion, the color, uh, levels of education, uh, I can tell you a lot about them, but also they're never going to meet people who don't share those characteristics. So I worry, uh, here we are, you know, we're now a country of 333, 5 million people that were increasingly uh, in separate, almost ecosystems, separate bubbles, and reinforced by what we were talking about before, the narrow casting that is contemporary uh, media. One of the things I like about public or national service is it potentially brings together people who would normally never cross paths, and I think that would be healthy. Can we really separate ourselves uh, in terms of ideals of citizenship from the idea that we are in collective groups and those collective groups have specific interests, whether they're political or racial or class-bound or whatever? Well, that's always been the case. I mean, you, so you and I are of similar vintage. 
And when we were growing up, there was a great debate between whether America was the mixing pot or the melting pot. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the terms, you know, the melting pot is we'd all kind of become the same. And the mixing pot was we would keep separate identities based upon country of origin or other factors, religion, uh, race that would that would partially define us, but we'd still be hyphenated uh, Americans. I, I like that idea. I like the idea. This is a country uh, essentially of immigrants, and we still have uh, over a million immigrants uh, a year here. It's, by the way, immigration is one of the reasons we are unlikely to face some of the same demographic challenges of of, of other societies. So I, I think the idea that we're hyphenated Americans, that we all have unique aspects. Uh, of who of our identity, but there's still a foundation that's American seems to me about right. It's ideal in many ways, what you're talking about. You say the focus should be on the real in foreign affairs and citizenship, but I, and you are aspirational. You're talking about ideals, aren't you? Uh, yeah. You know how to hurt a guy. Um, yeah, I am because, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, I, I care immensely about this country and its future. I also don't take it for granted. To me, you know, part of what I've learned over the last few years is a lot of our assumptions need to be questioned about like, the fact that we're having this conversation here about a book about American citizenship and which is essentially and the future of American democracy is not something we would have done 10 or 20 years ago. It just would not have occurred to and it wouldn't have been necessary. So something has gone wrong. Something is off the rails here. The good news is it's not irretrievable. Nothing's irrevocable. Nothing's inevitable in a bad sense. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is, though, nothing's good. Nothing's inevitable in a good sense. Things just don't fix themselves. Things don't simply put themselves back in order because they're, they're, they're better off that way. So, yeah, I'm aspirational. But even more, I feel a sense of urgency. I feel this. I feel... Uh, something of a sense of, of purpose here. I think good things can happen here and in the world, but they won't just happen in by in of themselves or or by themselves. It will take it will take action. It will take agency. I was thinking about this in a, kind of a different context. I was we do come from the same era. And I was thinking about when I was a kid and people wore buttons all the way with Adlai or I like Ike. But there wasn't animus. There seemed to be a kind of a friendly spirit about, yeah. you know, you support this candidate, I support that candidate. I don't think we're there. I don't know if we'll ever get back there now. Um, I don't mean that we should be retro or look backwards. I'm just saying that as a boy, I thought George Washington never told a lie. We should try to be like George Washington. Now George Washington was a slave owner. And so he's condemned and we have a whole different picture of George Washington. The nuances are, it seems to me, what we maybe need to get back. No, there's been a coarsening of American public dialogue. Social media and nuance tend not to be mentioned in the same sentence. Uh, there's a, a harshness uh, to it. I think in some ways the anonymity of a lot of social media feeds that harshness. And the distance, the fact that people aren't directly interacting, it's, it's harder to be so, I mean, the, the vitriol that, that I see, say, on Twitter, uh, Twitter's the one social media, uh, I, I get, well, one of the ones I'm still on, uh, the vitriol of Twitter is quite stunning. The, you, people can't just disagree with you. You have to be denounced, attacked, excoriated, uh, caricatured, defamed. It, it, I mean, it's, it's not for the thin of skin. 
or the faint of heart. Uh, so yeah, something has happened. And I see it in our, our politics, you know, lots of explanations why social media is one. I think, again, civics might be another. The, uh, the weakening of certain local institutions of families might be uh, a part of it. Yeah, we can, we can analyze it. My own sense is, though, we are where we are where we are. And the, what I'm sort of wrestling with then is, uh, what do we do about it? And so that's that's where I'm coming from, and that's why again uh, I'm trying to focus on who are the people in this society who have the most potential reach and impact. And again, I come to things like teachers, educators, business leaders, religious leaders, uh, journalists. These are all people with lots of uh, lots of reach, almost multiplier effects, because each one of them can can reach uh, a much a much uh, large number. But it ain't going to be easy. I mean, I have no illusions. Again, if I thought it was going to be easy, I wouldn't have bothered writing this book. I could have spent more time improving my golf game. Uh, so, but but I just think it's, I think it's necessary. The only good news I have on some of this is, well, two things. One is I think a lot of Americans, based on the reaction I've had in the last couple of months since the book came out, a lot of Americans agree. This book, is, not a lot of people are challenging the premise of the book, that something is wrong. Something needs to be done about it, and rebalancing American citizenship between rights and obligations is probably uh, a big part of it. The other is that this is a society that over the decades and centuries has shown its ability to change. It's one of the structural advantages of democracies. Uh, we, you know, uh, unlike authoritarian systems, we tend not to have their brittleness. We tend to be a bit more adaptable, a bit more changeable. So... Again, I, I don't feel this is mission impossible or even mission long shot. And in terms of political outcomes, look how close American politics have been in recent years. Small numbers could have outsized impact. If we could get political participation up one or two percent, that could have a tremendous impact. So I, I don't I don't feel this is this is hopeless stuff. Well, I like your optimism. Um, I wish I shared more of it. Uh, it doesn't carry over into my views on foreign policy, but. Uh, well, that's a good segue to talk about foreign policy because we are uh, at that point, I think, where we want to talk with you about foreign policy and then talk about what's up ahead for you and okay. take some questions from the audience. Um, what I first would like to ask you about foreign policy, I saw Jerry Brown, former governor of California, said, this is crazy. We're in a Cold War with China. We are so dependent financially. The whole world is globally on China, and yet China's sending military exercises into Taiwan now and uh, getting perhaps even more bold. Um, I don't know, maybe what happened in Ukraine will slow them down a bit because uh, clearly they seem to have their eye on Taiwan and want to be reunified uh, like they were with Hong Kong. How do you see this unfolding? I mean, they want to be the hegemon and uh, they seem to be moving more in that direction. Well, a couple of things. Uh, I think the beginning of realism here is that we do not want a cold war with China, much less a hot war. This is the most important relationship of this era of history. And our ability to deal with any number of regional and global challenges or just about anything else will be affected dramatically by the character of this character of this relationship. So let me just say that. That said, it has deteriorated pretty dramatically in recent years. And I think in part that this is a relationship that in increasingly lacks a rationale. Think about it. The United States and China 
for the last two decades of the Cold War, basically the 70s and 80s, and a process begun by Nixon and Kissinger and institutionalized by Jimmy Carter, uh, had a shared antipathy towards the Soviet Union. And that was the basis of the modern U.S.-China relationship. Then when the Cold War ended three decades ago, the countries cast about for a new rationale. It became economic interaction. And it was mute for different reasons. It was mutually advantageous. China wanted to grow and develop. We wanted the access and so forth. It suited everybody. And w- but what happened is uh, we were hoping that that process would lead China to become more open politically, less statist economically, and more and moderate in its foreign policy. And it looked like it might be working for a while when Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China, but under Xi Jinping, who's now led China for just over a decade, it is clearly not working. He has a fundamentally different view of of China, both the relationship with the government and the party to the people, as well as China's relationship to the uh, region and the uh, world. So I think people are, are right to be worried. I wouldn't say it's crazy. Uh, we don't control, if you will, the future character of the uh, relationship, but obviously we are, we're one of two parties to it. So we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, influence. Uh, you know, I would say uh, we ought to think very hard about what our goals are. And I, I don't have a lot of patience for Americans who talk about getting rid of the Communist Party or transforming China. I don't think that's a serious or appropriate role for foreign policy, whatever our preferences uh, might be. I think we've got to be careful around certain things. And we are. I mean, you know, uh, Taiwan, you know, we, we, we acknowledge China's position. Uh, it just goes back to Nixon and Kissinger and, uh, and Carter. On the other hand, we've also made it clear that China cannot unilaterally, through the use of force, decide the future of Taiwan. To use Middle Eastern parlance, the final status of the Taiwan mainland relationship has been left uh, open. And our only view is neither side should act unilaterally in a fashion that would uh, trigger a, a, a crisis. You know, can can we continue to finesse this? I don't know. I would simply say that it, it means not. It means being careful politically. It also means being much stronger militarily, in terms of strengthening Taiwan, strengthening our ability to deter or China or or defend. I, I, I essentially, I don't think we can ever persuade Xi Jinping or any Chinese leader to give up the aspirations of incorporating Taiwan. All I want to do is influence his decision-making calculus. Not only Taiwan, but Tibet probably too, and the South China Sea and all the rest. South China Sea, they're already moving on, but Taiwan, I think, is the most important because of geography and how our partners and allies in the region look at it, particularly uh, Japan. So we want to deter and, if need be, defend against it. I think uh, the consequences of China successfully moving against Taiwan would be quite catastrophic for U.S. Uh, foreign policy. Again, I think there are aspirations there. I don't, I don't see that any decisions have been made. You may be right that the Ukraine war has somewhat sobered them in terms of sanctions and all that, but China's a very different kind of uh, economy, shall we say, than, uh, than uh, Russia. I think you know, they are militarily building up certain capabilities, which they, they began before the Ukraine war and are accelerating in one or two areas uh, now. China doesn't have, uh, its generals don't have military experience. China hasn't fought a war since 1979. So, Russia and China both probably thought Ukraine would be a quicker uh, military victory for Russia. I'm also struck by, I just did a podcast, uh, which won't be out for a few weeks, with Orville Schell, who is 
one of the foremost experts on China, really, and who says these are really grievances. The Chinese see themselves as victims, even though they're flourishing and doing fantastic, of long colonial and Western dominance. And the Russians see themselves the same way. Thus, this alliance, and so the Iran part of this alliance now. China does have this sense, you know, this whole, the era of humiliation. Yeah. And And they feel that more recently, the United States is dedicated to stopping their rise. Until recently, they were wrong, but now we've actually explicitly said that, which is not something I would have said. Uh, but there you, uh, there you have it. But sure, but you know, I would say I wouldn't. The idea that, that all these countries are motivated by grievance, I wouldn't take it too far. I mean, if you read Mr. Putin's essay, published eight months or so before he invaded Ukraine this time around, it wasn't so much about grievance. It was about how. Ukraine had no right to be an independent entity. It was part of Greater Russia. That wasn't grievance. That was colonial sovereignty. Yeah, and, and so it was a, and Putin rejected the idea of this uh, Slavic country showing an alternative path of ties to the West, democratic, and so forth. So I mean, people can justify all sorts of behavior in the language of victimhood or, or grievance, but I don't buy it. And again, I can't change that. I can't change what goes on in the psyche of a, a Chinese political figure or a Russian political figure, all we could do is try to, in, in a world of some rationality, make it clear what would be the consequences, the negative or positive consequences of different behaviors and hope that they uh, act uh, rationally. That's, that's, that's essentially what foreign policy can do. We're in another arms race, though, aren't we? I mean, when you think about uh, the nuclear saber-rattling of Putin and when you think about What's going on? Uh, I don't. I don't know if uh, the Middle East countries like Saudi Arabia are going to continue to look for atomic weaponry or nuclear weaponry, thermonuclear weapons. But it seems likely that they will, even though they've made this apparent detente with Iran. Um, everybody's looking for uh, more armaments now. It seems. Uh, let's again unpack it a bit. Uh, I think that you've got several areas of of nuclear unpredictability. I mean, look, Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal, slightly larger than ours, the, the performance of their conventional forces probably increases their reliance on their nuclear arsenal. So the current arms control agreement has close to four years to run. I think it's an open question about Russia's interest in nuclear arms control after these four years are done, because this is one of their last remaining claims to great power status. So I think there's that. China is very interested in increasing its nuclear arsenal dramatically. Why? Because think about it. We have helped Ukraine indirectly. We ship arms to Ukraine. We have not sent American equip, uh, troops to Ukraine. China is hoping if it builds up its nuclear arms, the same thing would happen if there was ever a Taiwan crisis. We would send arms to Taiwan if we could get them there. Much harder to get arms to Taiwan than it is to uh, Ukraine, given the geography. But they would hope that if they had enough nuclear arms, they could perhaps deter direct American uh, intervention. I think several countries in the Middle East will gauge what they do in the nuclear front based upon Iran. It's not clear to me Iran's going to go that last 10 or 20 percent to overt declared nuclear weapons. Quite, quite possible Iran will decide to keep to become what's called the threshold nuclear country. Uh, be a couple of weeks or whatever away from having serviceable nuclear weapons, but thinking if it stays below the threshold, it could perhaps avoid attack. And second of all, it could perhaps avoid other countries in the region getting nuclear programs of their own. I think there's a big question in East Asia because of North Korea. 
North Korea right now, probably along, maybe after China has the world's second fastest growing nuclear arsenal. And we're seeing uh, real concerns, particularly in South Korea, about it. And there's uh, less confidence in South Korea in the United States. Uh, a lot of this goes back to the previous administration uh, where President Trump talked about taking American troops out of Korea because he was frustrated over their economic behavior in various areas. It had a real, uh, sent a real shock to the Korean uh, body politic. And polls now show, the most recent poll I saw was something in the neighborhood of 70% of Koreans are interested in their own strategic nuclear deterrent. I don't think it's going to happen. In about two weeks, the president of uh, South Korea will be in Washington. You'll see some uh, announcements that the United States will make, new forms of reassurance about the uh, strength of the American nuclear guarantee to uh, to South Korea. But yeah, I think it this is now a very much an alive issue for above all for South Korea to some extent for Japan comes back to the Taiwan issue if they decide that the United States cannot be counted on then I look these countries in any country which have a dependent security relationship if they no longer have confidence in that relationship they they only have a couple of options they can defer to a powerful neighbor a China or Russia or what have you they could try to become strategically self-sufficient, build up their own conventional and nuclear arms, or maybe they can find new protectors. Easier said than, than done. So if the United States essentially, for whatever reasons, for foreign policy choices or domestic political reasons, becomes a much less certain, reliable, predictable partner, then we will set in motion essentially tectonic shifts in the world. Uh, and that that. Yeah. And nuclear will be one of those places that would that could be fundamentally changed. I've got lots of questions for you. I want to get to as many of them as we can, but you just prompted me to ask you something else that's very crucial right now, and that is these documents that have been released from the Pentagon, from the Defense Department. Talk about confidence in the United States. I mean, yeah. particularly where our allies are concerned, Korea, I mean, Japan, um, but Europe as well. I mean, this puts us in a position where our allies are looking at us and saying, how can we trust you? I mean, isn't that where we are now? Well, again, it's hard to know exactly how, what extent these, these documents, how authentic they are, how accurate they are. But yeah, this, this adds to the sense that we are a, a difficult partner. I'm not sure this is worse than policies we announce at times that are, you know, is the release of these documents worse than what happened maybe in Afghanistan or some of the things that happened under the previous administration. I don't know. So my, I'm slightly more sanguine, but yeah, than, than, than others about the, the implication of this, but sure. It, look, it, it's, it's, it's friction. It, uh, it's, it, it's embarrassing for governments that, that work. It doesn't make it easier to be a friend of the United States. I take your point, but I, I don't think this is some historical hinge point or something or Depends. So we haven't seen what more is to come. We haven't, but even, but even so, we had you know when you look at WikiLeaks and all that. So far, I haven't seen something that's necessarily as bad, and we survived a lot of that. But yeah, look, these things worse than Snowden, I think, isn't it? Uh, again, I'm not sure of how authentic all these things are. Yeah, you know, I've not done a, a side by side comparison, but it, but you can weather these things. Again, I'm more worried. I'm less worried by leaks than I am about policy change. It actually gets back to the question we had here before. Historically, American foreign policy 
whether you had a Republican replaced by a Democrat or a Democrat replaced by a Republican in the White House or in many places in Congress, the continuity far outweighed any uh, degree of change. So if you were reliant on the United States, you might have preferences for elections, but the outcome would not change your, your world. Well, that's not clearly as true anymore. And you know, we're, we're, we'll see what happens in 2024. But the foreign policy gap within and between the parties has grown much larger. So um, we've, be- we've become a much less predictable uh, actor in the world. And I, and I think that's... That's a good thing. I say maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I see absolutely nothing uh, good about that. I think, look, this has been an extraordinary run of history for three quarters of a century, in large part because the United States was a, a capable and predictable actor. I don't see any alternative being preferable. Well, here are some questions from the audience. Uh, first one asks, have you considered the role of deliberative participatory democracy like civic assembly in generating greater citizenship? Well, I love participatory things, particularly for students and all, uh, and all that. You know, democracies can't be a spectator sport. Uh, I love debates. I love mock Supreme Court hearings. I love model Congresses. One of the things I, I did teaching notes for this book. Uh, one of the things I recommend is a constitutional convention, and students would come and they would recommend a uh, you know amendments that they would like to see. Like I ran into a really interesting one the other day where a young person came to me and said, why not lower the voting age to 16? And he said, because right now the demography of the United States is such that older people who aren't going to be around for as much as the future as I'll be have a disproportionately large voice. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's interesting. They might see it differently. But, uh, but I said, go out there and work for it. That'd be a great civic experience i love things the you know de tocqueville uh, you know, he couldn't be with us tonight but if de tocqueville uh, you know when he went around america what he found uniquely american was what he called associational things where americans came together to to do things so i think that's you know when i hear things like that i love it it's a question that uh, is apropos and and segues from what you just said uh Whoever sent this up said, wants to know, what is the most benign, least destructive, catalytic event which might coalesce and align the population to uphold democratic principles and behavior? It's a great question. I tend not to think of it that way, and here's why. Um, you know, people often say there's two types of events that can answer your question conceivably. Not. One is that crises, there's a school of thought that crises or terrible things galvanize and generate positive responses. And the problem with that theory is if you look at a lot of the crises in recent decades, they haven't done that. So they're not, crises are not automatically, in many cases, anything, uh, midwives to, to positive change. The other idea is that some new political figure would emerge who would essentially sell it, who would make the case. That's, that's, possible but the question is how would that person emerge in the first place and would he or she succeed so i don't think there's a simple or single event or individual who can get us where we need to do be which again is why i come up with this much more distributed ground up all of us have to take ownership all of us have to take uh 
if you will, all of us have a, an obligation to preserve to preserve American democracy. I, I find that a more useful way because that we do have control over. I don't have we don't have control over whether there's some event or whether there's some individual. The one thing we do have control over is what we do. What about the argument that 9/11 brought us together? Because it did, didn't it? 9/11 brought us together very temporarily. Uh, exceedingly temporarily, uh, at the, and then the reactions to it ultimately tore us apart, uh, including the uh, Iraq War. Also, the president at the time did some very powerfully good things. I, I, when, when President Bush, George W. Bush, went to the mosque several days afterwards, I thought it was a, to me it was a fantastic example of leadership and uh, modeling certain kinds of behavior and, uh, and all that. So, you know, I thought that was good to say the least. I think 9/11 did kindle. Uh, strong patriotism. People signed up for the armed forces and, and other lots. So, but it just didn't last, and that was so. Yeah, it was sort of a. It was a temporary good thing, but it it just it just it, it, Quite honestly, within a year or two, we were in a very different place as a society. Another question from the audience. Thank you for these questions, by the way. Common wisdom suggests uh, capitalism spurs democracy. Now we see authoritarian countries liberalizing their markets without liberalizing their policies. Example, China. While the U.S., leader of the free works, I think maybe supposed to read free world, is becoming increasingly protectionist. What's going on? Yeah, for my friend Fareed Zakaria had a column the other day that went a little bit like this and basically said that how we're becoming more like China in some ways. Um, when we were, you know, I think he was using TikTok as the example, but our industrial planning, uh, we are becoming more protectionist. I wouldn't exaggerate it though. And China's not really becoming a lot more like us. China wants many of the benefits of an open economy and society without having an open economy and society. It's a neat trick if you can pull it off. I doubt they can. Uh, uh, pull off, but look, all economies are a blend or a mixture. There's n no economy is a pure free market. No economy, probably not even North Korea's, is 100% government controlled. Well, North Korea may come closest, but there's still little areas of uh, private ownership, and, and and so so it's a question of of balance and all that. China has pulled back from many market reforms. The state-owned enterprises, which were going to be phased out. There's now more of them and they're being phased back. And they're they're receiving massive uh, subsidies. China wants to steer its economy and make very heavy uh, bets. We're going down at a much, much, much more modest way down some of that path. I think it's a mistake. My enthusiasm for it, shall we say, is is finite. But uh, that's, that, that's where we are. But I think it will ultimately be uh, extraordinarily expensive, whatever the results are. And I don't think they'll be transformative in this country. I think we'll end up paying a lot for, for very little. Before I go to another question, I have to ask you your thoughts about TikTok. Besides, aside from uh, maybe polluting the minds of our youth, um, no. they are owned by China. They are answerable to China, despite claiming that they're a private company. And the reality is uh, that... They are um, essentially, uh, at this point, not only sending out all of these things that people are worried about with adolescence and undermining citizenship, but you know, Yuval Harari writes, makes a case that everything is about data in terms of power and where power is going to be. They're getting all this data on us, aren't they? Well, they're getting data, and and they're. Con I'm not just talking about balloons in the sky. I'm talking about TikTok. And uh, no TikTok, no. It's data and it's content even more. The the and in China, there's no such thing as a private entity. Let's just get real here. 
if you're the leadership of TikTok, you are not a private actor. You ultimately are responsive to the state or you'll be drummed out of business and they will find somebody else to run it. It's, it's that simple. The, you, know, you asked before about church and state. Well, there's, there's, you know, in China, everything is state. Uh, that's the way, and you may have a degree of discretion, but that discretion can be removed at any time when the state decides that that's, that's what has to uh, be. So yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, I am wildly uneasy about uh, TikTok. So I, I'm trying to get smarter on it, but, if, but the data aspect and the content aspect uh, and the gap between TikTok China and TikTok America. Uh, I feel a lot better if they were running the same stuff, but they don't. TikTok in China is a, a much is, is totally controlled, and what shows up on TikTok there is fundamentally different than what shows up on TikTok here, and that also ought to tell you something. So, look, I, I'm not a big social media enthusiast to begin with, but I don't see uh, I'm not I'm, I, I don't see TikTok as enhancing American. Uh, enhancing American life or security. Well, here's a question sort of uh, on the same trajectory. What are the implications of AI and chatbots for democracy and citizenship? Again, um, easy question. Yeah, easy question. The, the, yeah, the answer is we don't know. Virtually any new technology that comes along has a benign and malign aspects. And that's true whether it's in the military area, the economic, the social, that. I mean, social media can be wonderfully good for this society in many ways. And social media can be incredibly destructive. Uh, AI can be fantastic if it's helping a medical team uh, read certain x-rays uh, or MRI images, what have you. It can be... Uh, and facial recognition technology. There are all sorts of articles today it can help diagnose people who had just had minor strokes and things like that. On the other hand, this technology can do terrible things. So my guess is when I hear Elon Musk and others talk about a six-month pause, I think that's just nonsense. There's no way you'll be able to get a, a, a six-minute pause. This is just going to be developed in a decentralized fashion in this country and around the world. So I just assume that there's going to be aspects of it that will, like any other technology, again, be uh, benign and, and, and malign. And that, that's, that's true of virtually, I mean, all, all, almost you know, all medical technologies can, be, can fight diseases, or some of them in the area of biotech can, can cause diseases. Nuclear stuff can be great for producing energy that doesn't add to climate change, and nuclear stuff can obviously have, you know, be used for for weapons, my guess is AI is going to will find all sorts of uses. Some of which uh, will be benign, some anything. But and the question is now: I doubt you can control the latter. Uh, I'm I'm pretty skeptical. The question is whether you can find ways of offsetting it. I mean, to take a much less serious, but but not unserious area, this question of uh, content and for students. Uh, so you have a, a chat GPT and so forth. And now you have softwares that are going to be that are being introduced to detect when the content is most likely not produced by an individual. So technology, you know, the same technology or related technologies can play a kind of offense, defense, action, reaction kind of thing. That my guess is that's how it's going to uh, play out. But the idea there's going to be some big international treaty. That's going to make sure only good things from AI come is to me just nonsense. It's not the way the world uh, 
works. And I think even domestically, we're not going to be able to to control it in in, in any serious uh, way. And there might be some companies or individuals who will, for ethical or other reasons, say we're not going to go down this path. Fine, but there will always be those who will. So I just you know, I just think that's a fact of life. Well, we've only got minutes left, and uh, the next question was: Could democracy survive social media? I think I'm going to maybe. Can you give a yes or a no to that? <laughs> yes, but social media, is a, it's a stress. By and large, I mean, while there's some positive aspects of social media, I turn, like I learn every day from social media. Uh, I, I get a sense of what's out there. I come across documents and speeches and things I just hadn't seen. So I find it really educational. I find it useful as a transmittal mechanism at, at the same time. But I am painfully aware of the other side of social media. Again, it's another example of a, a technology that has multiple effects, but I think for democracy in particular, the negatives are probably greater than the the positives because of the the echo chambers of misinformation and the tendency to polar to to reinforce uh, polarization and separateness in a democracy. Uh, I think that is dangerous for uh, for this for this country. Well, Richard. Um, always a pleasure and always enlightening to talk to you. And uh, congratulations again on your book. And I want to mention that there will be a book signing. Please take advantage of that, those of you who have been sitting here and um, been part of this conversation that we've had, which has been, I think, a highly illuminating conversation, as it always is when I have the privilege of talking to Richard Haas. Uh, we're going to miss you in terms of your leadership role. Um, I know it's in good hands. Uh, uh, Mike Froman taking over for you. Uh, I've heard nothing but good things about him, but these are big, big shoes to fill. And um, I wish you the best. Um, I know we'll be hearing more from you. We'll be reading more from you. And so that pleases me and uh, certainly delights me. Ladies and gentlemen, please a round of applause for Richard Hahn. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.